Hello and welcome to The Wire, your independent national coverage of a current affairs right across Australia on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Amina Shakur, coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. And today on the show... A huge amount of success in our second blockade and so, yeah, we're feeling pretty pleased to be able to stand up for the Palestinian people as we have today and, and, um, and prevent work from being done out here at the facility. Two people have chained themselves to a barrier as pro-Palestinian protesters rally around U.S. intelligence base in Alice Springs. A report demands major political finance reforms advocating transparency and fairness in handling money. That consuming at least two handfuls of nuts daily as part of a healthy diet seem to improve men's fertility by improving their sperm um, quality. Research suggesting nuts may boost male fertility calls for more studies on potential benefits. We'll have this and more for you over the next half hour. Thanks for being with us today. We're on air right across Australia thanks to the Community Radio Network and support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. First up today. Yesterday, protesters gathered around a U.S. intelligence base in Pine Gap, Alice Springs, to condemn Israel's attack on Palestinian civilians. Two protesters secured themselves to a concrete barrel outside Pine Gap, 25 kilometres south of Alice Springs. And it's the second blockade the community group has organised these protests. The wise contributor from C's Big Brekkie show started asking Aronet writer and protester Declan Ferber-Gillip, who was at the scene, how things evolved since they began the blockade. Aronet writer and protester Declan Ferber-Gillip speaking with C's Caitlin's Dawson, Mark Benstead and Andrew Harrison. Well, things have been going very successfully, really. We've, we've held the road here since, um, yeah, since about 4.40. So during that time, we've had over 100 site personnel turned away. So we've succeeded in shutting down quite a lot of work that's been happening out of the base this morning. We've got probably about 30 people here within our sort of uh, cohort. And we've got um, anti-fire and rescue who've been trying to dismantle our blockade barrel. And then we've got a number of uh, Australian federal police officers and um, NT police as well. So overall, we've, we've had a, a huge amount of success in our second blockade. And so, yeah, we're feeling pretty pleased to be able to stand up for the Palestinian people as we have today and, and, um, and prevent work from being done out here at the facility. And so uh, you're saying this is the second time. Um, what happened in the first blockade? Um, so in the first blockade, which we ran out here about a week after Israel stepped into its um, bombardment against Palestine, it was about it's going on about six or seven weeks ago now. I think six weeks ago was when we did it. So there's a little bit of a smaller blockade, but using a pretty similar tactic. We had uh, a Jewish friend who was is opposed to Israel and is opposed to the Zionist regime, who really felt that she wanted to take a stand and correct some of the myths about Israel's so-called right to exist or Israel's right to exist as a Jewish state and get to some of the, the root of some of those Zionist arguments. And I think she felt in particular that um, as a Jewish person who comes from a persecuted minority, that it was her, her duty to uh, stand up and call out some of the propaganda around that Israel runs around, runs using to users to, to justify its treatment of Palestinian people. So she was really keen to take a stand and put her, put her body on the, on the line and 
and get herself arrested that day. So that's what we did. Right. But uh, so in that first operation, how many people were arrested? Just the one. Uh, just one? Just had one person arrested and um, they were given a very much one charge on that day. Okay. And so have you had the police talk to you out there or any of the um, personnel from Pine Gap? facility today? Uh, I believe that there might be a site manager here from Pine Gap itself but yes certainly we've had a number of police dress us. We've got police liaisons within our team who sort of provide the face and Right. Declan can you tell us a bit more about the blockade? Um, Who's a part of it and what what blockages have we got on the road? Sure so really the group is made up of a collection of really just concerned different concerned citizens. Some people are health workers uh, myself, as a you know, I'm a local owner person, and we've got um, backing and support from Felicity Hayes, who's the traditional owner whose country this is. And otherwise, there's just a group of us who have come together and wanted to work together to do to to run this to run this action. Really, we're just bound together by our our passion for um, speaking out against these horrific war crimes that are happening in Palestine. It's um, other than that, we're not an official organisation. We're just people who've come together. As, as known to writer of this country, mate, why don't you just leave alone the war between Palestine and Israel over this? Why don't uh, we leave sorry. it alone? Yeah, exactly. I can, I can answer that. I think that in particular, as an Aboriginal person in this country who's a survivor of genocide and so on generation in the frontier wars, it's, I find it to be even more incumbent upon me to raise my voice and speak out against these atrocities happening um, internationally. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us to speak up against injustices like this and in huge historical moments where, you know, vulnerable people and populations are subjected to this kind of genocidal bombardment. So, yeah, I categorically reject um, the call that we should leave this um, this up to the outside world. And so have you had any attempts to speak with anyone, like, from Pine Gap or the uh, Minister for Defence or any of those avenues as well? Some other friends and I in Victoria recently did a similar blockade at, at Richard Marle's office. You know, we've been called, we, friends and I and, and concerned citizens, call the Defence Minister, call Penny Wong, the Foreign Affairs Minister, call the Prime Minister every day. So, Declan, from what I can understand, there's two secured protesters. On a concrete some... barrel, is it? Yeah, barrel. that's right. Yep, yeah, that's right. And, and you've got the emergency services, what, trying to, um, to get them disconnected from that? Yeah, that's right, trying to figure out how they can, um, how they can dismantle it, yep. And there's a, a banner reading Stop War Crimes, Close Pine Gap, yep. and Pine Gap yep. targets, stop war chil- crimes. targets yep. children. Stop War Crimes. Yep, that's right, and Free Palestine. And what are they using to um, try and um, undo what you've done on the concrete barrel? Well, I think they had an angle grinder. The mm. angle grinder got through some of the tin. Okay. Um, the tin, but the, it's the concrete itself that um, no one's been able to crack yet. I believe one of the um, people who are secured to that barrel is a social worker. That's right. Tommy. That's right. Tommy is a social worker, right. yeah. ACCC contacted Pine Gap, but they declined to comment. A new report from the Australian Institute is shaking things up in politics. It's calling for big changes to how politicians handle their money. The report suggests clear rules to make things transparent and fair, saying the current system favours big companies and rich individuals. With most voters worried about where politicians get their money, these proposed changes might reshape the way our democracy works. I spoke to CRN's political correspondent Amanda Kopp. 
Is there concerns about vested interests and cash for access in politics at the moment? Well, I guess it depends on who you ask. I think a lot of the major parties would say that those kinds of donations are what keeps them going. It's what allows them to fund their own campaigns, whether that's in an election or, you know, just the general kind of running of their party. Um, But certainly there's been a lot of conversation from the crossbench and the Greens in particular to bring in a whole lot of reforms to political donations. Uh, And that's definitely something that, that the public seems to want as well. The Australian Institute has suggested to lower the disclosure threshold for uh, political donations from Australian citizens. Uh, Could this be a good idea, um, I guess, to lower money influence in politics? Yeah, so at the moment, the threshold for disclosure, so that's essentially when it has to be publicly disclosed or or publicly put on the register um, that a donation has been made from a particular individual. The current threshold is $15,000, give or take. Um, And the Australia Institute is recommending that that be lowered to just $5,000 or lower. And essentially, this is just because, you know, why that particular threshold has been reached um, perhaps is is not necessarily um, keeping in step with public expectations around political donations. And I should just say, just on on the idea of cash for access, if people sort of are, are slightly confused as to what that actually means, often how it works here in Canberra is there are lots of events that get put on with different political parties um, or different business organisations or different lobby groups where often people have to pay very high amounts of money to even just get a seat at the table. Um, And often the draw card with those sorts of events is that, you know, there might be some ministers there or shadow ministers uh, that perhaps people would otherwise not have access to, but by paying to be on this particular table, um, which is, you know, some kind of fundraising campaign for, for say, the Labor Party or or, or the Liberal Party or or, or others, um, they would then have access to those people. So there's a lot of sort of wheeling and dealing that goes on here in Canberra that that doesn't necessarily get reported. Could real-time disclosure of political contributions during uh, election campaigns help in making uh, political financing more transparent? Yeah, absolutely. And I think what the issue here is, again, for perhaps if people don't quite know what happens with disclosure of of political donations, is at the moment that there isn't real-time disclosure. So um, several weeks or months after an election campaign is run, then a whole lot of the political donations get publicly released. And in that, you know, there are so many different donations coming from different corporations, different lobby groups, different individuals even, um, that there isn't a lot of transparency in terms of who might be influencing with their finances the kinds of election promises um, or policies that the major parties are committing to based on those on those donations. There be a ban on specific industries um, from donating to political parties such as the tobacco, gambling or fossil fuel companies um, in Australia? Well, I mean, this is certainly what that report from the Australia Institute is calling for. Essentially, their reasoning is that, you know, there are particular kinds of companies that cause a lot of public harm, like tobacco, like gambling, 
um, and increasingly like fossil fuel companies. Although it must be said that, you know, a lot of Australia's wealth and tax income does come from those fossil fuel industries, despite their, their impact on climate change. Um, so I think there is an argument to ban that sort of thing um, because, you know, they are companies with a huge amount of money and therefore a lot of money to potentially be able to give to political parties. Um, I don't think that that is necessarily on the cards at the moment, but it's certainly a conversation that perhaps we should be having. That was CRN's political correspondent Amanda Kopp speaking to The Wire. You're listening to The Wire, independent current affairs on community and Indigenous radio. I'm Mamina Shiku in Melbourne. A big hello to our listeners in Alice Springs on ACCC 102.1 FM and to our friends in Noosa on Noosa FM 101.3 and to the other side of the country to Radio Gula Re in Broome, Western Australia. The National Disability Insurance Scheme, NDIS, is making significant updates in how it supports people with autism, shifting from focusing only on diagnosis to consider everyone's unique needs. However, Bill Shorten, the Minister for National Disability Insurance Scheme of Australia, current suggestion challenges the old idea that having a diagnosis automatically qualifies you for NDIS support. Damon Medley, an experienced occupational therapist works for the NDIS, believes this could potentially change how professionals work together to support those with autism. This shift calls for a careful review of current practices with NDIS to better assist individuals navigating the autism spectrum disorders. Vanessa Gatika reports. The NDIS is undergoing a major shift regarding autism support, moving away from a diagnosis center approach towards a moralistic evaluation of individual needs. Bill Shorten's proposal challenges the idea that a diagnosis alone guarantees access to the scheme. Damian Midley, an occupational therapist with six years working in the NDIS, highlighted potential changes in collaboration among professionals supporting individuals with autism. This evolution prompts a critical re-evaluation of collaborative practices within the NDIS to better support individuals with autism. How do you perceive the evolving criteria for accessing the NDIS for individuals with autism? So the evolving criteria is something that's happening not just for autism, but across uh, everyone who wants to apply for the NDIS. So that's all disabilities. The change which has been proposed by Bill Shorten in the last couple of days is looking at what they call level two and level three uh, in individuals that have been diagnosed with autism. So in the past, what would happen is you would go to a health professional and they would determine whether you had an autism uh, diagnosis. And if you had level one, you would also need to provide evidence of the impairment. And the impairment is essentially 
getting the most appropriate health professional to write a report about how, for example, your autism impacts on the six functional domains, which is mobility, communication, social interaction, self-management, learning, and self-care. For those that uh, are diagnosed with level two and level three, level two uh, is described as requiring substantial support and level two, level three, sorry, requires very stand, very substantial support. So what that means is that the individuals are going to need a lot more support because the degree of um, how their autism impacts them is a lot more severe. So in essence, what the government is asking is the same for level one, is to write how the impairments are impacting those individuals with level two and level three through those six life domains. Now, in order to meet access to the scheme, you only need to be what they describe as significantly functionally impaired in only one of those domains. How might this proposed change affect people with autism meeting access to the scheme? So in essence, the changing criteria, uh, in, if you look at it one way, is actually not a bad thing because if people are more severely impacted, then it should be easier for the health professional to actually write in what areas of those six domains are they impacted. Then what is unclear as to whether the health professional who originally does the diagnosis is able to also write to the impairment section or whether another health professional needs to do that. And obviously um, that might be quite limiting for um, people who do need, uh, for example, an occupational therapist or a speech therapist or somebody else who's a health professional that can speak to that autism impairment space. And so the there may be a, a cost to that, which understandably for people trying to get support for their um, loved ones or individuals with autism, that may be a barrier for people um, gaining access. So the changes necessarily aren't bad because there are other disabilities, for example, psychosocial disabilities and physical disabilities amongst others, where you need to actually have to provide that uh, functional impact section anyway. So if we look at it from a fairness and equity perspective, it's just bringing in line those individuals with more severe autism to provide that additional evidence. And given they are going to be quite severely impacted, providing that evidence should be very easy to do from a health professional. It's just that there may be a cost to that, which quite rightly can be um, can be a limiting factor for people accessing the scheme. What are your thoughts about the long-term sustainability of the NDIS? comes down to money at the end of the day. We're all paying for this as taxpayers. Also, with Bill Shorten talking about how the NDIS can't be the only boat in the ocean, it raises a good point because if people don't get into the NDIS for whatever reason, then there's, there's been a lack of services or wraparound support for individuals. And so there's also a discussion going on between federal and state governments about how to provide uh, supports for people who don't get into the NDIs or who may not need it. And this has been part of the problem. 
That was Damien Medley, an experienced occupational therapist working with NDIS, speaking to the wise Vanessa Gatika. A Monash University-led research review has found that eating nuts may enhance male fertility. The authors of the study now want more research into the potential benefits of nuts for male and female fertility after finding only two studies on male eating more than two serves per day and none on women. One of the main researchers in the study, senior lecturer Barbara Cardoso, spoke with the wise Gabriel D'Angelo about the study. In the clinical trials conducted, what were the key points discovered between the link between nuts and fertility? So we identified that consuming at least two handfuls of nuts daily as part of a healthy diet seemed to improve men's fertility by improving their sperm um, quality. And this is very important because we know that sperm quality is a predictor of male fertility. So in one of the studies, they used uh, 75 grams of uh, walnuts, which is two full handfuls of walnuts for 12 weeks. And they saw a very important improvement in semen motility, morphology, and vitality, which uh, implicates in better Um, sperm quality. And in the other study, they used 60 grams of nuts, which was a combination of walnuts with also almonds and hazelnuts, and they saw the same positive effects. In your review, Advances in Nutrition, it was said in the summary, due to their nutritional profile, nuts seem to have the potential to promote successful reproductive outcomes. Can this be said for all nuts or just specific ones? This is a very good question. We know that all the nuts have a very interesting nutritional profile because they all um, have high concentration of um, healthy fats, polyphenols, fibers, and proteins. But we know that they are not all the same. So for this situation of fertility, we only have evidence for walnuts, almonds, and hazelnuts. We can hypothesize that all the nuts would also be beneficial, but they have not been tested. Also in the review, it said nuts contain monounsaturated fats, antioxidants and dietary fiber, essential nutrients which are vital for good health. Is it too easy to just simply put it down to, well, nuts being a healthy food source, therefore any healthy food could potentially help with fertility, or is it more complex than that? That's a very good question, and we uh, know, like some studies have shown, that healthy diets are associated with better fertility outcomes, um, including the Mediterranean diet, which includes nuts as part of it. So we can say that the better or the healthier the diet, the better the fertility outcomes, but we cannot narrow down to specific food types because not all of them have been tested. So after this finding, what next? What happens now? Is there going to be more testing with different types of varieties of nuts? So we are calling for more studies, particularly studies conducted in women because no studies have been done in women. And we also believe that more studies are necessary um, in men and particularly men with fertility issues.
And this could be done even before other types of nuts are that tested. senior lecturer Barbara Cardoso speaking to The Wire's Gabriel D'Angelo. And unfortunately, that's the end of today's show. Thanks so much for listening wherever you are in Australia. The Wire is a co-production between community radio stations 3ZZZ in Melbourne, 2 ser in Sydney, Radio Adelaide, 4ZZZ and Radio 4EB in Brisbane. With the great support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation and Community Radio Network. Check out all of our stories on our website at thewire.org.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. The Wire acknowledges the traditional custodians of the Kula Nations where the program has been produced and we pay our respects to the Aboriginal elders past, present and emerging. I'm Amina Shikou coming to you from 3ZZZ Radio in Melbourne, Victoria. Thanks so much for your company. And we'll see you next time on The Wire.